Good evening, everyone. It's fantastic to see you, and uh, so good to raise our voices in, in worship in this new little makeshift band that just met each other an hour ago. Didn't they do well? Let's give it up for the band. Yeah, so wonderful. <laughs> a South African, a Frenchman, and an American. It's fantastic. Nations in one band. <clears throat> do you consider yourself a South African or an American? You're actually an American. <laughs> oh, yeah, so it's so, so good to see you all, some uh, new faces and some familiar ones. And uh, we're in our third installment of the book of Genesis, and we are going to continue hanging out in Genesis 3 for one more night before we hop over to uh, look at, at Abraham and uh, at Isaac and probably at Joseph if we get there. But um, I, I just felt that there's more uh, of the gospel to mine in, in Genesis 3. You know, the Apostle Paul praises God for what he calls in Ephesians 1, the unsearchable riches of His grace. Such a great description of the gospel, isn't it? The unsearchable riches of His grace. In other words, the, the gospel is a many-faceted jewel to be mined and then to be marveled at. And I assume that the majority of us here have a saving knowledge of Jesus. Uh, some of us have walked with Jesus for decades. Some of us are newer Christians. Perhaps some of you are seeking faith, and I'm so glad if you're here doing that. But no matter how long or short we have uh, been walking with Jesus, there is always another facet of the jewel of the gospel to admire. Amen? And, and as we catch a glimpse of the incredible prism of beauty of the gospel, actually, God redeems us in new ways. How many of us know that just because you saved, God hasn't stopped redeeming us? Uh, the, the curse has actually touched every part of our lives, and as that carol goes, as far as the curse is found, He comes to make His grace abound. And uh, that's why we talked last night on marriage and family, because uh, we acknowledge that as a blessing, God has a blessed design for marriage and family, and yet all of us experience something of the curse that still needs redeeming in that area. And just, just hearing, even chatting to Art, uh, just how people are continuing to walk through pain in terms of, of, of family, the Lord is still redeeming. And I, I'm trusting, even this week, as you talk, husbands and wives and parents to children, that, that you feel the blessing of the gospel redeemed. Um, if I can just let you in on, on a, a really sacred thing that happened this time last year when we were here, just in terms of how the Lord comes and helps families who are in trouble. And uh, on one of the nights, we, we were asked by a couple who was at this, in this, sitting in this room, won't you come back to our cabin for dessert? And, um, and so we did. We'd never met them. And uh, they have a cabin up the hill. And uh, we were just talking around church. They were going through some church hurt. And as we were having dessert with them, they got a phone call. They have uh, three daughters. One is adoptive, and it was from their adoptive daughter who'd been married a year. And she was absolutely hysterical because her husband had just been killed in a car accident. And you're sitting there, you're just going, none of us saw this happen, and we don't even know these people. <laughs> Lord, why are we here? 
Anyway, that actually forced us to go deeper with them. Never met them, but the next morning reached out and just said, man, I, I don't know what to do. What, what do you say in moments like that? But he just said, is there any practical way we can, we can help you? And they said, well, funny, you should ask. We're kind of between churches. They'd come out of a very hurtful church situation. Um, and would your church be open to hosting the memorial for our son-in-law? I said, well, absolutely. I'll reach out to our staff who are home. And, and so three weeks later, we hosted the memorial, and, and, uh, and it was a, a tender, bittersweet time. But long story short, short, this couple and their family landed in our church, and a year later, they are, um, are members of the church. He's part of our, our men's group. And, um, and they're actually here this week, just the bittersweet anniversary of their son-in-law's death. But actually, God ministered to them this year as a family so powerfully. Their other daughter has got married, and they now have uh, fostered two babies in the midst of their pain. And I've just seen their story touch so many lives. People saying, how are you fostering these kids when you are in your own pain? They just say, we don't know, but God's grace has re is redeeming us. It's amazing. And I, I say that just to say, man, let's be open to the Lord doing... I mean, none of us would ever want that to happen to us. But actually, let's be open to these strange, mysterious connections. As the hymn writer said, God moves in mysterious ways. His wonders to perform. Let's be open. Who knows what the Lord would do in terms of connections and relationships into the future. Amen. So Genesis 2, uh, 25, I'm, I'm, I'm going to read it uh, actually out of the NLT. I normally preach out of the ESV, and, uh, but the NLT uh, just helps to express. I, I, I tease people that read the NLT. It's actually a very legit translation. I call it the nearly legitimate translation, uh, but it's, 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 it's actually a good one. And, um, and we're going to read it on the screen together, but I want to talk about God, the gospel, and shame. God, the gospel, and shame. How does the Lord redeem our shame? And while we get it up there, um, I want, to I want us to think about how our culture tends to shame one another. Uh, public shaming has become a thing. Uh, we have a church with multiple congregations, and uh, the Santa Ana congregation leader, his parents, who led a Baptist church for uh, 40 years, retired and moved to Santa Ana to join their son and help, which is fantastic. And they bought a house in the area, they just moved in, and uh, the mom was standing outside, looking at the house, trying to decide what color to paint it. And while she's doing this, a neighbor walks up on Facebook Live, videoing her, and starts to shame her and say, what are you doing? Get out of here. We don't want you here. This is for residents. We don't want visitors. And, she, and he is Facebook living her while he's shaming her. And she just turns and she says, no, 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 we, we've just moved in. We are the new, your new neighbors. And he was like, oh, 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 sorry, sorry, and walked back. And I'm just going like, what in the world? What in the world? And many of us have experienced moments like that where we've been shamed. Some people have been body shamed. Some people have been shamed for their name. Some people have been gender shamed. Some people have been race shamed. Some people have been shamed because of their class. 
Some of you have experienced shame because of your faith, because of your moral standpoint. And what does it mean to see the gospel as something that redeems us from shame? And as we look at Genesis 3, which is the famous The Fall, I just about bet you that most of us have heard this preach in terms of guilt. And guilt is in here, that Adam and Eve's sin resulted in their guilt, which resulted in their separation from God. And that absolutely happened. I preached on that on Sunday. But actually in here, they did not just experience guilt, which is an objective thing. They experienced shame, which is a subjective thing. Guilt is something you do. Shame is something you feel. And it's actually hidden in plain sight here. We will see that God redeems them both from guilt and shame. Let's read up on the screen. Now, the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. I included that last verse because it it opens this theme of shame. They were naked and felt no shame. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat of the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat from fruit from the trees of the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. And the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her, so she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you you were naked? The Lord God said, have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. And the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. That's what we saw last night, the proto-evangelon, the very first glimpse of the gospel, that the fruit of Eve, Jesus, would crush the serpent's head. Isn't that beautiful that even in the midst of this very sober curse, we see the hope of the gospel, that one will come from the seed of Adam, from from the womb of Eve, who would have his heel struck by the serpent, but actually would crush the serpent's head. There's victory in the midst of this curse. Amen? And then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth, and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. Then the man, Adam, named his wife Eve, 
because she would be the mother of all who live. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So we see in, in Genesis 1 and 2 that we, we see the, the wonder and the wisdom of the world that God created. But Genesis 3 explains what's wrong with the world, what happened because of sin. And, and it has a message. The, the message is this, that we were given the world like an unspoiled paradise. No sickness, no death, no distress, no toil, no conflict. And we've wrecked it. That's the message of Genesis 3. It gets sad before it gets glad. But just stay with me because it will get glad. In the words of that great theologian Adam Duritz from Counting Crows, any of you like the Counting Crows from the 90s, we paved paradise and put up a parking lot. That's what humanity did. And that's not just an environmental thing. That's a, a relational thing. That's a moral thing. That's, that's a spiritual thing. We took paradise. We paved it, put up a parking lot, thought this is going to be great, and it was terrible. We disobeyed God's design, and the consequences were horrific. And, and we all have a sense that the world is somehow broken. We can be up here and we say we enjoy the beauty. It's incredible beauty. But we also know that it's, it's broken. It's not as it should be. So, so how, how does God step into the wreckage of humanity and, and redeem it? Well, well, firstly, we need to, to see something of the problem that, that all of us are tempted to assume that we know better than God. Uh, ultimately, the, the temptation of the serpent, who it says was more shrewd than any other of the animals. Uh, other translations would say crafty. Others would say subtle. Uh, Satan and Revelations 19 says that the serpent in the garden was Satan. And, and Satan is subtle, isn't he? He doesn't just come and say, just disobey God. He, he comes with a subtle question. Did God really say you will not surely die, surely. And, he, and he's almost like a, a second-hand car salesman. He, 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 he presents this promise, or, 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 or like a timeshare salesman. He, he presents this promise of, of, of this ideal setting. If you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be opened. And you will know the difference between good and evil. Uh, he, he is promising some kind of enlightenment. Your eyes will be opened. And, and the word here, it's, it's the word bakar. You'll know the difference between good and evil. And the word bakar means you will have the maker's knowledge. In other words, you will know better than the creator. You will have maker's knowledge. In other words, God is the creator, God is the designer, and he gets the authority to say, this is how my design works. And what Satan tempts Adam and Eve with is saying, no, 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 if you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will know better than God. That is the heart of the sin of Adam and Eve that repeats itself in this vicious cycle, doesn't it? That we tend to think we know better than God about how we work. 
And it's, it's tragic. I mean, essentially, Satan tells them to stand up for themselves and redefine the moral limits between good and evil. Uh, Thaddeus Williams, one of the guys uh, speaking at the, at the creative conference, he says this. Uh, Satan is actually saying, creatures like you can define the scope and meaning of everything. So, so take hold of the absolute sovereignty over reality that God is trying to hog for himself. He makes God out to be this hog of the design. And, and, and today's cultural slogans repeat the serpent's slogan, doesn't it? Trust in yourselves. This is the serpent. Every Disney movie says that. Just trust in yourselves. Believe in yourselves. Don't believe in anything outside of yourselves. The answers are within. This is the serpent. And, and they're really just repackaged versions of, of Genesis 3. They, they sound, Disney movies sound very progressive, but, but they're actually super traditional. They just go all the way back to the garden, don't they? And, and you and I are, are tempted to reject God's design and redefine our design with respect to relationships, to gender, to sexuality, to marriage, to rest, to work, to wealth, because we think we have the maker's knowledge. And, and Genesis 3 pushes back on this claim and, and, and says, actually, God's limits are loving. True freedom happens within God's limits. He is not crushing our freedom. One more little comment before we get to something of how we respond to this. And, and it's that, that I think we tend to, to believe that we are essentially good unless we have something wrong with our chemistry or something happened to us in our childhood. So modern psychology would either say, if we struggle in life, it's either because of what mom and dad did to us, or otherwise it's what mom and dad gave to us in chemistry. Now I want to walk carefully because many of us do struggle with a chemistry that we receive that is difficult, and many of us do struggle with what mom and dad did to us which was difficult. And these are realities. But I'm just saying, in Adam and Eve's case, none of that was the case. Because their chemistry was perfect, and they also had a perfect parent. So it's good to just sit and go, and yet they still had a desire to take what was off limits. Augustine, the early church father, called it homo incurvatus which means we tend to curve in on ourselves. We tend to want what is inside ourselves rather than what God says. It's the Isaiah 53 problem. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. We, we, we are homo incurvatus. We, we curved in on ourselves. We are selfish human beings. And so Adam and Eve experienced loss of, of paradise, loss of intimacy, and, and the glory of the garden had, had departed. And, and we feel the same. We, we feel that same sense of loss of paradise too. And, 
And, and, and instead of experiencing the enlightenment that Satan promised, they experienced separation and shame. That's the, that's the big problem. And, and, and we know that. That's what verse 7 says. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So can you see the irony of this thing? He promises them, your eyes will be opened to knowing the difference between good and evil. Enlightenment. And their eyes were opened, but not to enlightenment, actually to shame. And from being naked and unashamed, suddenly they are aware of their nakedness. And they hide. They hide in three ways. They hide with fig leaves from each other. They also hide behind the trees when God comes looking. They hide behind creation. And then they hide behind their excuses. There's this blaming and shaming game which we mentioned last, last night, where Adam moved from singing the song of, Eve, you are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, to the woman you gave me, you put here, she made me do it. And don't we find that in our lives? When we feel shame at what we've done, we look for a blame game. We deflect. And that's what we see here. And, and Derek Kidner describes this whole <laughs> Thing he, he says, sin's proper fruit is shame. I just want to go, just hold on. Hold on for a moment, Derek Kidner. Sin's proper fruit is shame. I don't want no shame. I'm tired of being shamed. You're not going to shame me. Shame is terrible. All shame is terrible. Right? Not a rhetorical question. All shame, I mean, we must just get rid of shame. Sin's proper fruit is, is shame. Well, I want, to, I want to explore why there is such a thing as inappropriate shame and appropriate shame. And, and what God does with that and how the gospel helps us in that. There's a guy called Daniel DeWitt who says that guilt and shame are twins born in the garden. They're only moments apart, but they're aren't identical. Guilt is usually tied to an event. I did something bad. Shame is tied to a person. I am bad. Guilt is the wound. Shame is the scar. Guilt is isolated to the individual. Shame is contagious. Hmm. Thought-provoking, isn't it? Well, let me, let me begin with, with misplaced shame or inappropriate shame. The shame that's not connected to our guilt, that actually someone puts on us, that we actually have to learn to shake off. And I, I want to help you, before we talk about appropriate shame, I, I want to help you to shake off inappropriate shame, because every single one of us have experienced it. And the Lord wants to help us to shake it off and, and grasp hold of our identity as sons and daughters, part of the royal family, <laughs> purchased by Christ's royal blood. I... I I, I, I found myself thinking of the first time I can remember inappropriate shame. And I want you to, to do the same. And this is, um, when I think about it, I don't feel pain about it, but I can remember feeling deep pain at this point. I grew up not very wealthy, and I played a sport called cricket, which is really like the mother of baseball. It's the more boring version of baseball. Played over five days, and you can draw at the end of, of that. Can you believe it? Cricket. Anyway, I love cricket. And, and you play, and you're all white. And the, 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 
cleats are quite expensive. And I wanted Nike cleats, but my parents couldn't afford them. And so my mom went and bought me some Nike fakes called iVikes. <laughs> I mean, you can laugh. I mean, feel sorry for me, but you can laugh. It was, there was a little gap between you know, the, the end, between the, 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 the top of the end. So it was not actually Nike, it was iVike. And I was like, well, no one's going to know. But actually, I was playing one day, and one of my teammates recognized. And he was like, those are fakes! And the next thing, the whole team around was like, those are fakes! And they were just laughing at me. And I was kind of crushed. I was shamed. And, and I want to tell you, as a 51-year-old, I still have, I don't think I've ever bought a pair of Nikes since then. <laughs> I've been given a couple of pairs. It's fantastic. But, but, but just the whole idea of like, oh, that brand shaming, that, that, that was hard. And it's that kind of shaking that, man, Jesus wants, to, shaming, Jesus wants to help you to shake that off. It's inappropriate. It's inappropriate. And he wants to heal us if we've been inappropriately shamed. But I want us to see here that actually there's a sense of appropriate shame. Now, now, now work with me here. Because God does not leave Adam and Eve in their shame. But neither does he come to them and say, you know, there they are covering themselves with, with, with fig leaves and say, oh no, you did nothing wrong. It's okay. Drop those fig leaves. He didn't actually do that. He comes asking some searching, pretty painful questions. Who told you? Where are you? Who did you believe? Why did you believe? In other words, he, he makes them squirm a little bit. Now, God is not shaming them because very quickly after that, he comes with skins to cover them, and we'll get to that now. But I, I just want us to see that actually he is using their sense of feeling shame in the moment to move them to a place of realizing they need covering in other words, God will actually use our feelings of shame not to leave us there, but to move us to a place of repentance so that we can be forgiven and covered in His righteousness. And we actually need to be wise enough to go, sometimes I feel appropriate shame. I tell you what, what, what has helped me to understand this is that I come from, and most of you come from, guilt-grace cultures where we understand sin to be an individual thing between me and God, and so I am guilty, and I need your grace, and, and therefore I'm free. And that's fantastic. That's part of the gospel. But honor shame cultures, particularly Asian cultures and Middle Eastern cultures, realize that sin is not only individual, it's also communal. In other words, when I sin, it's not just between me and God. I have dishonored a people. And therefore, I feel shame that I've let God and people down. One of our pastors, who's actually planting our, our next church, really helped me with this. He's a Korean-American guy called Jonas. And uh, he, he, he spoke to me about um, a time about 20 years ago where there was a university shooting on the East Coast. And it was by a Korean-American. And he said, at that time... The Korean-American leaders in America stood up and said to the shooter, you have shamed the whole Korean-American 
community. In other words, what you have done is not just wicked, it is dishonorable to us. I've, I've found myself thinking about moments of well-placed shame where I have been guilty and it's been followed by the proper fruit of shame that has led to repentance and forgiveness. Funny little example. Again, I was younger and I, I used to steal chocolate. True confessions. And we would ration chocolates. And I remember one Easter, I was about 10, and my mom and dad had got a big box of marshmallow Easter eggs. They were my favorites. And they put them up in the bedroom cupboard. And every day, for about a month before Easter, I would just go and take one. And add, well, it was probably a couple of weeks, but I probably had taken 10 or so. And it was getting towards Easter. I'm like, this Easter egg box is looking a little empty. Getting, I mean, like on Easter, I'm going to be found out. Well, two days before Easter, we had a burglary. And guess what? The burglars stole the whole box of Easter eggs. And guess what? I was really happy. And guess what? After that, I felt shame. <laughs> Terrible shame. I found myself going, not only have I sinned, but I was actually glad that we got burgled so that I wouldn't be found out. It's crazy, isn't it? And that actually caused me to go and confess to my parents who forgave me. But actually it was shame, the proper fruit of shame, appropriate shame, let them down. That led me to repentance. 2 Corinthians 10 says, Godly sorrow, which is another uh, version of appropriate shame, leads us to repentance, which leads to life and leaves no regrets. Don't shrug off appropriate shame. Allow it to lead you to repentance. Don't make futile attempts to cover up your sense of shame. Remember, they covered, covered themselves in three ways, with fig leaves, behind the trees, and with their excuses. In the churches that I've grown up in that tend to be more charismatic church which is we love to blame the devil. The devil made me do it. We had a South African cricket captain, actually, a man called Hansi Cronier, who was caught match-fixing. In other words, he would get thousands of dollars to throw a match. And he was a believer, and he said, the devil made me do it on national TV. You just go, no, 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 own it, buddy. Just own it. My bad, my bad. What are some of the excuses that we tend to, to make? Well, if you hadn't sent such suggestive signals, I wouldn't have come on to you like that. Well, if you hadn't offered me that drink, I wouldn't have taken it. Well, if you hadn't provoked me like that, I wouldn't have got angry. We, we tend to, to deflect attention. There are times, though... When, when shame is not connected so much to guilt, but it's actually connected to a sense of insufficiency. Where we feel a sense of nakedness. In other words, we don't feel guilty, we just feel like we're not enough. And the fig leaves, I'm going to be super vulnerable here, the fig leaves that we sometimes put over are not connected to our sense of guilt, but, but our sense of insufficiency. So... 
It, it could be the car we drive or the house that we live in or the clothes we, we wear. or the, I mean, I, I, I'm a guy who's got two master's degrees. They're not from colleges that you necessarily know. So if I, if I said, oh, I went to Wheaton or Talbot, it's like, whoa, real respect. But actually, they, they are great colleges where I grew up. And I found myself going in my office. I want people to come to my office and see my two master's degrees. And realize those are, they, those are things that make me feel enough. But they are actually fig leaves. Sometimes our fig leaves are good deeds. We feel insufficient, so we, 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 we do a lot of good stuff because it feels like, oh, now I'm enough. But they fig leaves because how good is good enough? I, I have to say I... Um, take great pride in, number one, being an early riser, in being prayerful in the morning as a pastor, in being productive and hospitable. Those are my, my fig leaves. So my worst nightmare, that's happened at times, is when I have an early morning meeting with someone and I oversleep my alarm because they arrive and I'm not an early riser, and I haven't had my prayer, and I don't look productive, I don't look put together, they're at the door, put my cell phone on, my hair's all over the place. You know, sometimes when you get up and, and you just feel so ugly, your, your face, your, your iPhone doesn't even recognize your face, it won't go on. You know, oh my gosh, I haven't even showered, whatever, you know. And, and for me in those moments, it's not just like, I'm sorry I overslept. I feel devastated. And that's a sure sign that those are the things that I do to make me feel sufficient. Those are fig leaves. What are your fig leaves? What are your fig leaves? And I want to land just with the beauty of reflecting on verse 20. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and Eve. We touched on this last night, but I want to look a little bit more deeply at this, that in the midst of this harrowing chapter about shame, appropriate shame, there is massive relief and there's solid hope. God steps into the wreckage, seeking them, counseling them, redeeming them. He makes skins to cover them. And, and this meant for the first time ever, something had to die. In God's creation. Something had to die. An animal had to die. Blood had to be shed. Negatively, this says God saying, Adam and Eve, you're not okay. You're not what you were, and you're not what you ought to be. You need coverings of some sort. But, but positively, it's God saying, I will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And that is the gospel, isn't it? We try always to cover our sense of insufficiency. And God is saying, I will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. See, the beauty of receiving this undeserved gift of God's unmerited favor in Christ, the one who lived the life that we could not live, who died the death that we should have died in our place to cover us in His righteousness, this beautiful exchange. The beauty of that is when we receive the animal skins, as it were, comparing them to the flimsy fig leaves, we actually go, oh my gosh, I'm covered not by my works, but by His. They're solid. They don't flap in the wind. 
make me feel naked and ashamed. I'm actually covered by the good deeds of the perfect one. You know what, what that does? It actually enables us to enjoy our achievements without wrapping our identity around them. In other words, for me, the, the essence of the gospel is the, the truest thing about you is not what you have done or not what's been done to you. Those things are true, but they're not the truest things about you. The truest things about you are what's been done for you. Something or someone was sacrificed for you to clothe you with skins, with a righteousness that was solid and would not fray. And that's a beautiful thing. And when we take on that kind of righteousness, we can enjoy achievement and relationship and building a career and, and say, Lord, these are blessings, these are great, but I'm not going to use these to try and cover shame. I'm going to enjoy these knowing that my shame has already been covered. And I want us to think about how Christ on the cross was not only killed, but he was also shamed. In other words, the wages of sin is death. And so Christ had to die to forgive us. He had to be exiled to reconcile us. But the cross is more than that. The cross includes Jesus Christ, the Son of God, being shamed in order to honor us. And I want us to think about that because I only stumbled over this. I've been pastoring for almost 30 years. I only stumbled over this about two years ago. And it's an aspect of the gospel that just is shining. Oh God, you did not only die that I might live, you were shamed that I might be honored. And I want us to just reflect as we land on the psalm that Jesus prayed on the cross. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried that prayer out in the cross. And I want us to see the, the shame that Jesus experienced. Because this psalm is prophetic. These things happened to Jesus on the cross. Psalm 22 verse 6 says this. This, this is foreshadowing what Jesus would pray on the cross. But I am a worm and not a man. That's how Jesus felt on the cross. I am a worm and not a man. I am scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who seek me mock me and they make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Remember, the Roman soldier said that. Isn't the cross amazing? 600 years before the cross, what was being... What was going to be said was already written. It's amazing. It brings such assurance. But can we see that, that Jesus did not just die? He, he was shamed as a criminal. Ah, you say you're the Messiah, the Son of God? We're going to crucify you in the most shameful way. We will, we will punch you. We will spit on you. We will divide your, 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 your garments. We will shove a crown of thorns on your head because you said you're the king. That the cross was full of mocking. 
And he carries on, verse 14, I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Incredible prophetic psalm. But this is a description of someone who died in shame. And then it lands with this, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. For he has not despised, despised the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Isn't this beautiful that in the midst of Jesus being shamed, he's saying to God, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In other words, Jesus is thinking of your and my honor before the Father as he is shamed. Isn't that amazing? You say, Alan, how do you know? This seems awesome, but this seems fanciful. This is the way that, that the cross heals us of, a shame, of shame. We see Jesus with his disciples in the resurrection. And we see how he treats the very people who betrayed him. One of the things I so love about Jesus is he doesn't shame his disciples for betraying him or denying him. In fact, when Mary comes, she's the first. I mean, she's faithful. If it was me, and thank God it's not me, but if it was me, I would have said to Mary, go and tell those shameful deniers that they got it wrong and I'm alive. How about you? But instead he said, Mary, go and tell my brothers. I am alive and I will meet them in Jerusalem. Isn't that beautiful? I will tell of your name before my brothers. Jesus, in his resurrection, did not shame his disciples. He honored them. He called them brothers. Isn't that beautiful? And Jesus calls you brother and sister, irrespective of what you've done and irrespective of what has been done to you. And therefore, his death forgives us of sin and counts us righteous. But his crucifixion, his shaming, actually removes the stain of shame, the shame we feel that we are not enough, and replaces it with honor. Isn't that stunning news? Let's have the band up. Lord Jesus, we, we so thank you that this glimpse that we have of the skins that covered the first Adam really speak of the second Adam, his sacrifice. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you that not only did you die to justify us, you were shamed to honor us. And I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would take the preaching of the word and that you would push it down deep into our souls. Thank you, Jesus, that your blood cleanses us from the stains of shame. And I pray that you would do that in people's lives, even going back years, decades. Lord, cleanse us from the stains of shame that we feel, either from sins committed against us or sins that we committed. Oh, Jesus, won't you just apply the full, beautiful weight of the cross? 
Uh, we thank you for how gracious you were to your disciples who let you down. And we thank you that you're gracious to us. You call us brother and sister when we let you down. We thank you. We receive your grace that heals us of shame. And everyone said...